0: Foyer. you see the two black metal boxes. That's a place where you can drop those registration cards on your way out this morning. Also, if you're in the room or if you're joining us virtually this morning, we have made a web form on our website. It's really easy to navigate to. You can take out your device and just go to fbcchickishade.org slash connect. Fill out that simple web form uh, we, we Basically, we made the the web form is a digital version of the card that is in, in the pews. It's not exactly the same, but it's more or less the same thing. And so either way, that's a great way that you can give us your information so that we might connect with you today. We want to be able to pray for you, pray for any needs that you have. We want to try to connect you into the life of our church, which admittedly looks a little bit weird right now, doesn't it? Because everything is kind of, uh, everything is different. Everything, all of our normal routines, all of our normal things are kind of, Displaced and we're doing things differently at the moment. But we know that even though our operations, even though our, our routines might be somewhat different at the moment, our heart for people isn't, and our ministry and our mission have not changed. We believe that God has put us on this earth to know Him and to make Him known, or as we like to say around here at First Baptist, that the mission of our church is to love all people to Jesus and to multiply disciples. And we want to encourage you that you would continue on your own personal journey with the Lord. And we would love to be the church that you're a part of that walks beside you on that journey as you seek to honor him. And so that you can give us your information and connect with us that way virtually or with the forum if you're here in person. You know, this week has marked a couple of key uh, incremental steps for us. For one, this past week we had... What our student ministry referred to as Camp COVID, where this past Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, they had uh, what will be this year's version of, uh, of camp, of student camp for our, our teenagers. We had a great group of teens, great group of sponsors, our leadership that had a fantastic week with that. And so that was a great week. Vacation Bible School was in its second week this past week this morning for the first time since all of this began, we have our nursery is open for threes and under. So we're incrementally, slowly, uh, prayerfully even taking steps to try to make our way back to operating. But we also, as, as and no doubt you, you know this, we're watching things even here locally in Chickasha in the last couple of weeks, well particularly in the last week to 10 days, we've seen a real surge of COVID cases locally. Whereas about about a week ago, uh, maybe seven to eight days ago, there were some somewhere between five and 10 active cases locally. There's actually... Uh, I, I think the, the word as of yesterday is 59 cases active here locally. So that's something that we're watching, that we're praying about as a church, that we're praying for our community, trying to find ways to be the, the, the salt and the light that we're called to be by Jesus in the community, while at the same time doing everything that we can to try to uh, provide for the well-being of our, our church family and our community as well. So pray for us as we navigate that. Pray for our community as we seek to minister and and find ways to minister to people as they have needs in these moments. And I would add another step. Let's continue to pray for... An immediate end to this virus. We believe in God's power to do that. He hasn't chosen to do that to this point. And, and there are reasons that we don't see and we don't understand behind that, no doubt, but we believe in his power nonetheless. And we want to call out and ask God that there would be a, a, an end to COVID-19 and that, uh, that, that no more lives would be placed in harm's way. And so we would encourage you to pray along those lines. One final thing I'll say about prayer, and then we'll jump into this morning's text as we as we roll on. But as we go through this season, if you have prayer needs that you would like to share with us, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. The first, and, and, and perhaps even the easiest, is if you have a prayer need that you would like to share with us as a staff and that you would like for us to forward along through an email prayer chain that we, that we have, you can just simply email that prayer need to prayer at fbcchickashay.org. It's a, an email address that we've set up. That email account does nothing but just funnel prayer requests. And so those prayer requests come in, we see those, we pray over those, we send those out so that others might pray over those as well. So if you have a prayer need that you would like to share, you can just send that to prayer at fbcchickashade.org. You can also use the cards we were talking about that are here in the room or the virtual connect cards, fbcchickashade.org slash connect that you can you can use that card, flip it over on the backside. There's a place for prayer request. You can submit that online web form. But if you're going to go to the infor- or to the trouble, I should say, of typing out the information and you want to just send it to prayer at org, it comes directly to that email account. We pray over that. We send that out for others as well. So just something to be aware of as there are no doubt many things that we want to continue to pray faithfully for in this season. We're going to be in a passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. We're continuing in a sermon series that we've been calling Encouragement for Exiles. Now, last week, we took a break from this. We just had a a week where we focused on a passage of Scripture in Micah that Doug preached through and did a fantastic job with that. But this week, we're back to our series that we're looking at this summer, studying through the book of 1 Peter. And a a few weeks ago, Colby preached as well, Colby Sorensen. Colby did a fantastic job. When I originally went to Colby and told Colby that, Uh, I'd like for him to preach on that given Sunday. I told him this text. I wanted him to preach this text because I wanted him to read it. And I wanted him to think, oh, how am I going to do that? Because admittedly, this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today is one of the most difficult to understand passages of Scripture in all of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at this today, and I'm really excited to study this together and dig into this word. But let's, let's just acknowledge up front, this is a tough tough passage of scripture because what does it mean and even as I'm saying that you're probably scanning through like "Ooh, I picked a good one right I mean what a good day to be here and you're looking through that but we'll dive in in a minute and and we'll dig deep for that I eventually told Colby I was just kidding that I would take this particular passage uh and and I would be the one to preach it but uh I I want us to decode if you will this text this morning and and here's the, the truth of the matter is even though this passage raises uh, sort of a, a, an issue, a, a, a doctrinal or a theological issue that we're going to wrestle with this morning, it raises a, a tricky issue of the descent of Christ for us to look at. The truth of the matter is that the truth that Peter is teaching is the same regardless of how we might understand the nuance or the 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 specific nature of some of the finer points of this text and so the sermon points that we'll look at this morning actually are are great truths that anchor us to peter's message throughout the book of first peter and his encouragement for us as believers but then as we if, if i can say it this way as we kind of get in the weeds a little bit you'll find that there are some things here that you think oh wow I don't even know what I know about this. I don't know what I believe about this. And I'm going to try to highlight and bring some of that to the surface this morning for the sake of our understanding. But even if we don't understand some of the finer points of all that, the truth is that the truth for us today is there and it's readily available and readily visible that we would live in light of Christ's victory over sin and death. And we'll see that as we study the text this morning. When I was getting up and getting ready this morning, I sat down to have breakfast And I had a bowl of cereal, I had a bowl of frosted flakes this morning, because even though I'm 42, sometimes I like to start my day like I'm 22 still, right? That I can eat a big bowl of sugary cereal and forget about the consequences. And when I was a kid, I I used to love to have a bowl of cereal in the mornings, and When I was younger and we would eat cereal, we would often set the box of cereal in front of us there and there would be something printed on the backside of the box of cereal to kind of keep your attention or, you know, a a little maze to, to look at or a crossword or something. But every now and then you would have a box of cereal that would have a little puzzle for you to decode. And inside of the box of the cereal would be a special sort of a, a magnifying glass or, or a special lens or something, right, which was really nothing more than just a cheap piece of plastic film, of colored plastic film. But when you held it up to the box of cereal, you would decode the letters and almost always invariable, invariably, whatever you decoded was like the slogan, right, for the cereal. It was just a cheap form of advertisement. So you'd do the work and you'd decode and it'd say something like I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs or something like that, right? Uh, how, how do we eat cereal anymore with, you know, we, we go to Twitter, we go to Facebook, we go to news or whatever, how, we don't have the box anymore, or maybe they do, I don't know, I don't, I don't do that anymore, maybe I've, I've grown up just a little bit, not all the way because I still like to eat cereal, but a, a little bit. As I was eating my bowl of cereal this morning, I was thinking about that though, decoding the back of the box of cereal. Well, what we want to do this morning with this text is we want to decode it. There are some other scriptures there that can help us to understand this, and so we'll look at some of those and and sort of dig in and decode. But I want to stipulate and and say again that really for us, the plain truth by which we ought to live by is at the highest level. It's, It's there and it's readily available for us to see that we can live in light of Christ's resurrection, his power over sin and death, and yet. There are some other things here that we'll weigh together this morning. So let's dig into this text. And what I really hope that we will see in the midst of all of this today is what we're going to call the wonder of Jesus' work, the wonder of Jesus' work. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we read this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to... To him, and so the first point that I want us to see is we consider the wonder of Jesus' work in this text. is it's just simply this: that Jesus secured the way of salvation by his suffering. In his suffering, in his death, in his burial, Jesus secured a way of salvation for us. He paid the price for our sin, as we sang about in in that song. That because he lives, I can face tomorrow. But we sang in that very song about how he purchased my pardon. He paid the price to purchase my pardon from sin. And that's what Jesus did with his death, with his suffering. He secured the way of salvation to us. Look at what it says specifically, this particular phrase in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. That Jesus did all of this That he might bring us to God. That is to say, that we might be made right, that we might be reconciled with God the Father through the work of Jesus, who gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins, thus securing the way of salvation. Jesus suffered on the cross in order that we could know his saving power over our sinful flesh. In fact, I want you to look at verse 18 and let's just read verse 18 again. And I want you to see that really what verse 18 does is it it tells the story of the gospel of the work of Jesus in in one verse. It's sort of a, a one verse explanation of the gospel. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That is, Jesus who was righteous suffering on behalf of us who are unrighteous. That we, excuse me, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus suffered on the cross and he was put to death in the flesh. You know, the the suffering of Jesus that secured a way of our salvation, this gives us hope. This gives us, this gives us peace. That we can be made right with God, the righteous Who died for us, the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God, that we might be ushered into a right relationship through faith in Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sins. It's been said that Jesus went before us to make a way for us in order that he might rescue us from our sin. He went before us, which means that he took the first step. He he bore our sin on the cross that he might die for us his death as payment for our sin in order that he might rescue us from our sin so we see this Peter proclaims this truth that we would that we would live in light of this truth that Jesus secured the way of salvation for us by his suffering. The second point I want us to see in the text is this that Jesus proclaimed his power over sin and death. Now, this is where it turns. Verses 19 and 20 get tricky. I mean, admittedly, uh, verses 19 and 20 are are some of the most difficult to understand at least on the surface because in part we need to we need to really dig in and understand what is it talking about here? The spirits in prison and in the days of Noah and what are some of these things and even ultimately sort of a a cosmology, a second temple period cosmology that that is different from the way that we understand the cosmos, the universe around us, the world around us today. And so we're gonna dig in 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 just a moment and and deal with some of that. But the the point, regardless of some of the, the nuance and the finer details, the point is still this. Jesus proclaimed his power over sin and death. Not only did Jesus suffer on our behalf, not only did Jesus secure a way for salvation, but then he proclaimed that victory so that we might know, that we might turn to him in faith, that we might believe on him and experience the power of freedom and forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he proclaimed that truth. For us. So let's walk simply through verses 19 and 20, and then I want to give you some other scriptures that will, I, I think, help us understand this text as well. Verse 19, talking about in the spirit. So let's back up and catch the last phrase of verse 18. It says, That he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That is to say, this. on on a a doctrinal level, that we understand that Jesus died an actual death. It wasn't just a spiritual death as some have mistakenly, uh, even we would say heretically claimed that Jesus just died. It was a spiritual death. Jesus physically died. He was both fully God and fully man. It was the hypostatic union, which is a fancy way of saying that the spirit of God was infused in the body, in the, in the incarnation, the body of a mortal man. He was both fully God and fully man. And in his Flesh, Jesus was tempted in his flesh, he faced temptations and trials and struggles, he was punished and beaten and ultimately crucified and buried for our sins. Now, what does that mean that he was buried? It means that we should understand Jesus died a physical death in his mortal flesh, he died a physical death, but he also experienced a physical bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is not going to be a text that we spend a lot of time with today, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 walks through this in great detail, even pointing out many eyewitnesses who who were witness to these particular truths. But it makes this statement here, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, what does that mean that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? There are There are several ideas of uh, what specifically that means, okay? So one idea, and, and I'll tell you that let me, let me just say that I'm a relative newcomer to this particular, to, to where I stand on this issue now. And when I say I'm a relative newcomer to that, let me, let me tell you kind of specifically my own journey in trying to understand and know more about this particular text. Around Easter time of this year, back in the month of April, the early weeks of April, there is a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's now actually the dean of the Hobbes College. He wasn't then, but he's been promoted because OBU named a new president, and so there was some shuffling of the ranks of responsibility, and so his name is Dr. Matt Emerson, and Dr. Emerson has written a book that's called He Descended Into the Dead, and it's talking about Holy Saturday. He's describing, he's talking about particularly a phrase from one of the the early creeds of the faith. It's in both the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed that says that he descended to the dead. Jesus descended to the dead, or as one creed says specifically when we translate it from the Latin, the original or Latin and English, he descended into hell. What does that mean to say that Jesus descended to hell? Well, I want to unpack that and I want to help explain what that means because I think it's really important that we understand. And around Easter of this year, Dr. Emerson tweeted some things about this particular book that he had written dealing with this idea. And it's always been a matter that I knew I didn't know what I probably ought to know about, but I just, you know, in the course of life and ministry and other things, it was never a particular uh, text or, or a theological idea that I had really delved into. So when I saw Dr. Emerson's tweets, I thought, I'm going to get the book and I'm going to read that and I'm going to dig in and, and try to understand more. So I did. I got the book uh, and, and, and I would highly recommend it. It's a great book, by the way. Uh, and I also read uh, some things in the footnotes and some other articles and things that he references and just started chasing it, trying to broaden my understanding of that. And I will admit to you that even my position that I'm going to present to you today, although I, I, it's where I stand and, and, and although it's what I believe to be a, uh, a scripturally informed, a biblical position, I, I think we can readily understand that there are a couple of different positions that, that go to the scriptures and try to explain this from the scriptures and so I think that's where we need to start is by not just saying, well, I think it means this, or even going to a creed per se, although the creeds are good and and, and there's a lot of weighty uh, consideration and study behind those, they're not inspired. They're not authoritative the way that the text of Scripture is. And so we ought to begin in the Scripture and say, what does this mean? What does the Scripture teaches, teach us that this means? So the spirits in prison. One of the ideas, the idea that I hold, is that it's referring specifically to, here to the sons of men that are referenced in Genesis chapter six. And so you can go back and you can study Genesis chapter six is in the days of Noah, the sons of men who, uh, who were with the daughters, uh, uh, the sons of God rather, who were with the daughters of men. And there was this race that were produced and it was seen as very evil and sinful in the eyes of God. Most believe that those, the, those sons of God were, uh, were uh, uh, they were fallen angels essentially, and that a part of their punishment is that they were, they were sent to the prison, which would be separation from God. As fallen spiritual beings, they were sent to what we would now refer to, we would refer to it as hell. We would say, well, they were, they were punished in hell for their, for their fall, for their rebellion against God. The reader in the day of Peter would have understood, they wouldn't have used the word hell the way that we use that word now. They would have used the term perhaps Gehenna or Hades would have been the word that they would have used. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit more about Gehenna or Hades and what that means in a moment. But regardless to say, they had a, a, a somewhat of a different cosmology. But that's the idea is that these were, go back to Genesis chapter six, the Nephilim, if you if you are familiar with that and have spent any time looking at that. I think this is a reference. And I think what further proof for that is is, is what it says specifically in verse 20 about the days of Noah, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, because Genesis 6 is telling the story of the days of Noah and the sin that had overtaken the earth. Now, there's another idea. There's some who believe that actually the spirits in prison were the spirits of the Old Testament saints who were in a, a place where they were waiting for the appearance of the Messiah, the Son of God. So after the Old Testament saints died, that they would go to a place that they would refer to as Abraham's bosom or paradise. And there in Abraham's bosom or paradise, they awaited the coming of the Messiah. Now, I believe that that is what happened because of what I understand or, or believe to be true about their understanding of what Abraham's bosom was. Again, Promise. We'll get there and unpack that a little bit more in just a moment. But that's the second idea. Uh, and that, so Jesus went to those and proclaimed his righteous victory, thus securing their salvation through faith in him, a sort of a forward faith in the, in the coming Messiah. And then there are other ideas that are probably a little less equally substantiated, but uh, still others go to the scriptures. I happen to fall in understanding that these spirits in prison are a reference to the Nephilim from Genesis chapter six, okay? But I'll admit to you, I hold that with an open hand because although it's there in the scripture and although it's trying to be faithful to and understand what the scriptures are teaching, this is not a primary matter of salvation. And I think it's one that is both interesting and deserving of, excuse me, our study as we dig in and try to really know what the text means. But regardless, here's what we know to be true. Jesus died a physical death and his And and he was resurrected in a bodily, a real bodily resurrection. And in that, he shows his power, proclaims his power. Now, the question is, what did he do while he was, as we've described it, dead, as he was physically dead? And what the church has historically referred to as Holy Saturday, the period from his death on Good Friday until his resurrection on Easter Sunday, where was Jesus on Good Saturday? where was he during that period of time? There are many today who want to sort of spiritualize that and say, well, Jesus experienced pain and suffering. And and I'll tell you that even heretofore, even before I really began to study this a few months ago, if you had asked me, where was Jesus? My answer would have been, well, that Jesus was in paradise. Because he says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. But I've come to have a little bit fuller understanding of perhaps what Jesus really meant when he described paradise. And in order to understand that, and again, this is where I'm getting into some of Dr. Emerson's book and the explanation that Dr. Emerson gives in this book. We need to understand the cosmology, the mindset of Second Temple Judaism, which was the the very mindset and understanding of Peter's audience. According to this mindset of Second Temple Judaism, we tend to think of the cosmos, the world, in in this sense. That there is this physical world that we live in. And when we die, there's a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm where there is both heaven and hell. But according to the the, the Second Temple period, they believed that the, the... the cosmology of the spirit realm was divided into three parts, okay? There are these three parts. There was what they would refer to as Abraham's bosom or paradise. Those words are used somewhat interchangeably. Abraham's bosom or paradise. That was, that was essentially, that was the place where they would go to be in the presence of God. It's not heaven the way that we think of uh, the, the new city, the new Jerusalem that Christ will inaugurate, that he will bring down when he returns again at his second coming but it is a place where God dwells it is the dwelling place of God but the the Jew in the day of uh, of, of Peter would have understood that as what we would call a part of Sheol or the place of the dead so when you die if you were righteous and you had faith in God, then you would go to Abraham's bosom. You would go to paradise, which was the place of God. That was a very real place. It was a spiritual a spiritual realm where they would be in the presence of God. There was no separation from God there, but it's not fully what we think of when we think of, particularly uh, when we think of the, the writing of uh, of Paul, and he's describing. I said Paul, excuse me, John, and he's describing Revelation. He's describing the the eschaton, the the things that are to come, and the new heaven and the new Jerusalem, the throne room of God, and some of these things. To them, it would have been a, a sort of like a garden like place where they would have been restored into what was fallen, and there they would dwell in the presence of God, paradise. Abraham's bosom. The second place where you go, if you were unrighteous, was the place of the dead that was unrighteous. And they would refer to this as Sheol, or this part of Sheol rather, as Hades or Gehenna. It was a place of separation from God, a place of suffering, a place of torment. And it was a place that truly that no one would want to be. And so that's where beings like fallen angels, for example, would be, is that they would be in Hades. They would be in Gehenna. They would be there suffering. And then there was the third part of this underworld of the, of the mindset. And, and I'm looking at my notes here to make sure I say this right. Uh, they would refer to this as Tartarus. And that was the place of imprisoned or rebellious angels or spirits not just those who lived an unrighteous life, who didn't walk with the Lord, but those who were, who were rebellious fallen angels or spirits were imprisoned in a place that they would call Tartarus. And that seems to be a direct reference to what Peter is speaking of here. Now, here's the point. Jesus did not go to hell Even though you say, well, but the the creed says that Jesus descended to hell. Well, again, we have to do a little bit of work there in going back to the original Latin. But for for the creeds to say that Jesus descended to hell ought to rightly be understood. Not as saying that Jesus went to a lake of fire and suffered in separation from God because he is God. But rather that he went to Abraham's bosom, to paradise, the place of the righteous dead. And there he preached his victory, proclaimed his victory, so that even the spirits in Tartarus and those in Gehenna would know that he had conquered sin and death. And so, this is what Dr. Emerson writes. And rather than trying to just... Recapitulated. it. I'm going to read it to you in his very own words. Now, this is not from the book. What I'm reading is actually sort of a summary that he wrote on a gospel coalition blog that is entitled, Why and How to Preach Christ's Descent to the Dead. Okay, but this is what he says, and this is, this is actually uh, really good. Dr. Emerson says, Christ in remaining dead for three days experienced death as all humans do. His body remained in the grave and his soul remained in the place of the righteous dead. He did not suffer there, but remaining the incarnate son proclaimed the victory procured by his penal substitutionary death to all those in the place of dead. Fallen angels, the unrighteous dead, and the Old Testament saints. Christ's descent is thus primarily the beginning of his exaltation, not a continuation of his humiliation. He goes on to say this, in other words, when we say that Jesus descended to the dead, we're simply confessing four points. Number one, Jesus really died a truly human death and really remained dead. Secondly, that his human soul departed to the place of the dead, and particularly the righteous compartment, paradise or Abraham's bosom, due to his uniquely righteous life. Third, that he proclaimed his victory to all those in the place of the dead. And fourth, that, this, that his presence and especially his resurrected and ascended presence necessarily changes the place of the righteous dead from one of faithful expectation for the Messiah's coming to one where the Messiah is actually present among them. Here's what we're not confessing because this is where people have taken some of this and, and developed what we would say to just to be false teachings or, or heretical understandings. Here's what we're not confessing when we say that Jesus descended to the dead. We're not confessing that he was tormented in hell. We are not confessing that he gave a second chance gospel proclamation to those in hell. We're not confessing that prior to Jesus' descent, the Old Testament saints were cut off from God's presence or... Fourthly, we're not confessing that he brought everyone out of hell and destroyed hell forever so that now no one inhabits hell, which would be a form of universalism. All of those are points that people have used, have argued for along this line of reason. So you see that, maybe you think, well, who cares, right? Maybe you think that's too much, that's too deep, that's too weighty. Or maybe you hear that and you think, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder, I want to read some more. I want to know some more. But regardless of whether we understand the fullness and some of the nuance, the truth for us is there and it's readily available. Do you see that? That Jesus, in his victory, secured a way of salvation and he proclaimed his power over sin and death. And so, what does it mean when we go on to read about because they formerly didn't these spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. That's a reference again, I believe to Genesis chapter six and it's referring to those uh, Nephilim the, the, that, were, that were those fallen spiritual beings that, that sinned and rebelled against God that were in the place that they would have understood as Tartarus and that Jesus proclaimed his victory To them, along with all of the rest of creation in his victorious work over sin and death. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, there's another tricky part. Is he saying that baptism saves us? Well, no, he's not. Uh, But I just read that baptism saves us. What he's saying is this. This is the way that we should understand this. Baptism, and this is a key phrase, which corresponds to this, now saves you. In other words, go back to the example of Noah that's given here. In the days of Noah, when Noah built the ark and Noah and his family went on the ark, eight in total, who along with the rest of the animals that were brought on the ark, they survived the flood The water itself was not what saved them. The ark was what saved them. The ark was representative of God's promise to save them. It was representative of God's vehicle through which he provided salvation. And the waters were the the waters in in, in a sort of judgment that God brought. What he's saying is that baptism is symbolic of this. That the water of baptism is symbolic of the judgment of death. But then as we're brought up out of the water, it's a picture of the power of Christ's resurrection, which made it alive in us through faith in Jesus. And the baptism, which corresponds to this, now points to this saving work of Christ. I think this is the way that we ought to rightly understand this. Not as a removal of dirt, which is he's going on to say, the baptism doesn't wash away the dirt. The baptism, there's no salvific work in the baptism. But he says here, as an appeal to God for a good conscience, which means that it's representative of, it's symbolic of, the fact that we have come to Christ in faith, believing in Him in faith, and that the, the baptism itself becomes symbolic of that. Again, deep and weighty, but the point is still this Jesus conquered sin and death on our behalf, and he proclaimed that victory. One other uh, thing I want to do to take this and, and drive it home even a little further still is let's look at a couple of other passages of Scripture that, that I think give a little bit fuller understanding and weight. First of all, let's go to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 verse 40. Matthew chapter 12 verse 40, Jesus is asked for a sign He's asked for a sign. Jesus, if you truly are the Messiah, if you truly are the chosen one of God, give us a sign. And this is Jesus' response. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He says, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, Jesus is pointing to his death and his physical death and his, and his burial, that he died a physical death. But just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and came up out of the belly of the fish, that he too would come up out of the belly of the earth, so to speak, victorious over sin and death. That's what Jesus himself said about the sign of his power, the sign of Jonah. But then Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 8, 9, and 10. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul Paul writes this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then parenthetically, it's in parentheses in your Bible, in saying he ascended on high. What does it mean? But he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What Paul is saying there, Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. Jesus said the son of man would be buried in the grave for three days and then he would rise victorious. Paul says Jesus did just that. He ascended on high. He led a host of captives. But the fact that he ascended also points to the fact that he had first descended into the depths, into the earth, into death, in order that he might arise victorious, thus conquering death on our behalf. Which brings us back to what Peter is really arguing in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is saying, that because Jesus is victorious over sin and death... We can live in the power of his resurrection. We can live in the power of his freedom, his forgiveness. We can live and we can endure as exiles in this world. We can endure the sufferings, the trials, the tribulations that we face because we know that Jesus, our Savior, went before us to make a way for us that he might rescue us from our sin. Which points us to this third phrase, and that's this. Jesus authenticated his authority by his resurrection. The third point that we see about the the work of Jesus, the wonder of Jesus' work, is that Jesus authenticated his authority by his resurrection, meaning that Jesus proved, in fact, that he was who he said he was, that he had the power, that he proclaimed that he had as he suffered on our behalf and was victorious over sin and death through his resurrection. His resurrection authenticates his authority. His resurrection proves once and for all that Jesus was the son of God, that he did conquer sin and death, that he did secure a way of salvation for us. And so he's gone into heaven, it says in verse 22, and he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There is the picture of his authority. There is the picture of the fact that Jesus authenticated his authority. He now sits victorious in in, in, in heaven with God, at the right hand of God, and all the rest of creation is subject to him and his divine authority. What does this mean for us? Well, the implications are, are rather powerful, really, because it means that because of Jesus' authority over sin and death, by faith in him, we can live with that same power, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is alive in you. We have this resurrection power made available to us through faith in Jesus. Jesus' authority enables our endurance. We can endure in this life. We can endure trial and hardship and suffering and pain. We can go through the difficulties that we might face in this life because Jesus made a way for us. He enabled our endurance through his resurrection power, through conquering sin and death. And also, Jesus' authority commends our confidence. It enables our endurance. It commends our confidence, which means to say that, what I mean to say is that we can have confidence in this work. We can trust in this. We can anchor our lives to this truth, as Hebrews chapter 6 tells us, because it's not tied to us not tied to our power, our work, our abilities, but we're tethered to Jesus Christ, the victorious one who suffered over sin and death, who was buried in the grave, who rose victorious, thus authenticating his authority. And now all of creation is subjected to him. Jesus, our Savior, made a way for us to experience his power, that he might enable our endurance, that he might commend our confidence, that we can live with bold confidence in him because of his saving work. And that's the very truth that we want to claim today. That same power, that same victory over sin and death, that same work that made a way for us that we might have our salvation secure, we trust in through the power, the grace of Jesus This morning, we're gonna take a moment to reflect on this truth. See, if you're here today and, and perhaps you're struggling, you're wrestling with this, maybe it's because you're facing some hardships and difficulty right now and you're thinking, what am I to do? Can I tell you that through the power of Christ, you can overcome, you can endure hardship, you can endure suffering and pain and trial and tribulation because Jesus, your Savior, went before you to make a way for you that he might rescue you from sin and death. And you can trust him and you can endure because of him. And you can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it unto completion. Jesus, our Savior, made a way. And so what I want us to do is I want us to take a moment to reflect on this truth. After we sing a song together where we where we spend some time just reflecting in a time of, of, of thoughtful prayer and, and Reflection considering this truth, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about how specifically we respond. So first, we reflect, and then we'll take a moment to consider our response to this truth. So what I want to ask you to do is join me in a word of prayer. And as I'm praying, our, our musicians are going to come to the stage, and they're going to be here so that after I pray, we can have a time of reflection where we sing this song, and we think on, meditate on this truth, and then I'll come back and direct our response together today. Would you join me? Lord, we thank you that you went before us to make a way for us so that we might be victorious in you, Jesus as you rescue us from our sin, as you, as you raise us up by your power, by your resurrection power, which is made available to us as we trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us and you made a way for us. We claim your power and your victory. And now, Lord, we want to live according to that truth. Move in our hearts and our lives as we reflect on this. Stir us to surrender our lives, respond in obedience to you, Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen. Why don't we stand?